Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. There's no Tom Slater here this week, but I'm delighted to be joined by two spiked columnists. We've got Joanna Williams and Luke Gissos. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing the surge of anti-Semitism on university campuses, how the COVID inquiry is whitewashing the lockdown, and what next for woke capitalism. So since the 7th of October attacks, there's been a huge rise in anti-Semitism across the West. One thing that's been really noticeable is how much this has taken off in universities among the most supposedly educated and tolerant section of the population. I mean, if you look to the US, just this week there was um, at Harvard, a Jewish uh, student was being hounded. Uh, People were shouting shame at him, not letting him leave. At Cornell University, there was even a death threat, um, a student allegedly saying he was going to bring an assault rifle to campus to go and shoot up Jews. Over here, we've seen similar things. We've seen Jewish chaplaincies targeted. Um, the various anti-Semitism campaigns have said there's, you know, there's been around 74 incidents, I think, uh, just in the past month or so. Joe, what what is going on here? No, it's truly shocking. And you're absolutely right. There have been some horrendous incidents with Jewish students in particular being targeted. Palestinian flags draped over cars. Um, um, Israeli flags where the Star of David's been replaced with a swastika. And I think a, a number of things are really noticeable. I mean, one thing is if, if these are students who are so sensitive to racism, mm. you know, every racist microaggression is noted and protested against. And if you look at the way Black Lives Matter protests swept across university campuses, across the whole of the Western world, and the way you really had an institutional response to the killing of George Floyd, how very, very different it is now. You know, these are universities that are at most producing mealy-mouthed statements in support of all victims. And and some are even going much further. I think one of the problems is that this is not just students. You know, this is academics who are really leading the charge, I would say, here. Uh, We had one university this week, uh, University College uh, uh, in London, where the academics who were members of UCU, the trade union, actually voted in favour of a motion of of solidarity with Hamas. Um, They voted in support of an intifada, which just truly beggars belief that, that, that academics are doing this. So I think there's the difference with other kinds of racism, the way anti-Semitism's been normalised. But there's also clearly a very long history to this. This has not just come out of nowhere. We've had um, a campaign such as Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions and Israeli Apartheid Weeks, which have been features of campus life for many years now. And I really see this as a continuation. Yeah. And Luke, do you think there's a contradiction or is it an expression of the fact that this is, you know, the campus is the place of the safe space um, where all things that are offensive, uh, views that are offensive, speakers that are offensive need to be sort of cleansed. Or do you think, you know, that's part of the ideology? I mean, I think it's part of the ideology. Just to put some context here, the uh, Community Support Trust issued a report in 2020 into campus anti-Semitism and found around about 130 incidents across two years. And that was taken to be quite a significant increase. Mm. The same organisation since October the 7th has reported around 37 incidents and a hotline set up for the university at the Jewish Students' Union has received hundreds and hundreds of calls. So 
it's important to recognize that this doesn't come out of nowhere. As, jo as Joanna said, this is a problem that's been on campuses for a long time. And But I think you're right, Fraser, that this has, since the October the 7th attack, worth remembering the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, yeah. uh, we've seen an explosion of, of, of such incidents. So what is going on here in the context of safe spaces? Well, I mean, I remember being at university 18 years ago now, and I remember how there was always the idea that um, it was fine to be a Jewish student as long as you rejected Israel. Yeah. And I don't think universities have ever been a safe space for students who outwardly support Israel. And I think the reason for that is that in the minds of um, the young, um, and particularly those on campuses um, inclined towards the left, um, we've seen a, a kind of... Israel represents the epitome of privilege in a lot of these people's minds. It represents the epitome of um, particularly white privilege. I think they see Jewish students and Israeli students as embodying um, white privilege. And so in their mind, supporting Israel means supporting colonialism. It means supporting imperialism. It means supporting the West. It means supporting um, foreign intervention. And all of those things are antithetical to their politics. And that has been true for a long time. So. I don't think universities are a safe space for Israeli students, and I don't think they ever have been. I think Luke's absolutely right about the broader political context here, and I think it's uh, a really simplistic approach to understanding what's going on, where the lines are really drawn between, uh, to be very, very crude and simplistic about it, between almost kind of goodies and baddies, yeah. um, where the, the Israelis are held up as the bad people in the kind of whole identity politics sphere. and. It's almost as if being left-wing nowadays means being uh, inherently anti-Israel and also as part of that anti-Jewish. Mm. To be very blunt about it, that's what it means. And so I think it's perhaps unsurprising then that so many um, students do take this approach. But I think it's because it's been allowed to to fester and it's gone unchallenged for, for so many years now. And I think that's really a shocking indictment of, of political opposition to this on campus. Yeah, and I, I want to move on to talk about another institution, this time the police. Now, we've seen uh, not only have they been reluctant to uh, intervene when people have shouted things like jihad or intifada. Now, at Spike, we're very pro-free speech, so we don't necessarily want them to uh, intervene. But conversely, the police have been taking down posters of Israeli kidnap victims. They have been telling groups like the Campaign for Antisemitism that they can't drive their billboard truck around showing the victims of Hamas through London because that would be a provocation of some kind. I mean, look, what have you made of, of that kind of response? I mean, aren't they, whether they are, I'm sure they're not anti-Semitic, but they're appeasing anti-Semites, aren't they? Definitely. And I think this arises as a result of um, an institution uh, in the police who are just confused about what it means to be woke. So uh, they are obviously bombarded every day with um, new policy guidance, new um, new directives from um, senior police officers as to how to treat particularly minor particular minority groups. They just haven't got the memo when it comes to Jews. And they haven't got the memo when it comes to Israelis. And I think they reflect a blind spot in the broader woke culture. You know, woke culture does ignore Jews. So, and, and they're not part of the same, you know, when it comes to diversity and, and making sure we pay due tolerance um, to religious uh, freedom, Jews don't fit into that. So, I mean, to, it's fair to say that... Um, you know, the police have come out and apologised where those incidents, where, where, you know, there was one incident where a police officer was himself physically taking down posters. It didn't seem like anyone in his senior management knew why he was doing that. Really? It could have been something to do, you know, and, and they always come up with some legalistic explanation. You know, maybe they're fly, fly tipping or, or, or breaking some obscure bylaw. But I think it does speak to this 
broader context, which is where you have a police force who are so versed in the in, in the rules of woke that there is a complete blind spot when it comes to Jews and, Isra- and Israelis. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, though, it's really another example of how hate speech legislation actually allows for the taking of sides. And we see this in other instances as well. I mean, misgender someone, yeah. and that's hate speech. And now you just see that same kind of side taking taking place here. I mean, there was an incident in London, a part of London this week that I'm sure you've heard of, um, where somebody filmed themselves walking down the high street criticising Palestinian flags hanging off lampposts. And the next thing you know, they've got the police officers knocking, oh, they posted it on Facebook, mm. sorry. And then the next thing you know, they've got police officers knocking on their door, um, accusing them of, of hate speech. And you just can't imagine that same thing taking place if somebody was walking around criticising um, the Israeli flag yeah. being on display. And I think it's this this kind of partisanship that that is really permitted through hate speech legislation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that was, I think, treated as a racially aggravated public order offence, you know, him sort of filming just saying Palestine flag crap <laughs> and, you know, stupid thing to say, I guess, but not a, not a criminal matter. Um, and shouting jihad is, uh, you get, the Metropolitan Police issued this statement saying, well, you know, there are many meanings of jihad. It could be, an, you know, they could be referring to an inner personal struggle, even though the context is obviously, you know, the terror attack on Israel. In a march uh, organized by Hizbut al tahrir which is, uh, you know, an Islamist group uh, banned in many countries, <laughs> people are holding up placards saying it's calling on Muslim armies to invade Israel. And yet, you know, we're supposed to give it the most, uh, you know, the almost the most nice possible, I don't know, context or whatever. We had to do, wipe away any possible, uh, any possibility that this might be a bit inflammatory. Luke Joss. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I think we should note also, uh, perhaps leaning back into the university's topic, that there have been some um, worrying signs of people being censored and sanctioned for just, you know, showing their support for Palestine, which is not what we want either. You know, it should not be a crime, and it's not a crime to express support for um, Palestinian civilians. It crosses a line when you express support for Hamas, who are a prescribed terrorist organisation. And, you know, we we do in this country have a limit on free speech when you incite violence against other people, and we can debate the merits of that law, but I think broadly uh, most people would agree with it. So I think we need to recognise that this is a difficult time for, for free expression around this topic. And I think we need to advocate in favour of absolute freedom to uh, express one's view on the conflict um, without necessarily encouraging the authorities to be mealy-mouthed when it comes to tipping over into what is you know, incitement to violence, which I don't think any civilised society should have to tolerate. I think the other thing that's going on here is a, a kind of massively inflamed example of the heckler's veto, yeah. where the police are just hugely cowardly. Uh, and want to perhaps understandably stop tensions from erupting and and stop potential um, protests or violence breaking out. But that gives um, pro-Palestinian protesters, like say, kind of heckler's veto, the very threat that they could intimidate people or they could... um, it kind of a lower standard is applied to these Palestinian protesters where they, they are seen as being potentially emotional or, or violent or, or, you know, needing to be appeased, I think mm. is the best way of putting it. Uh, and so posters are torn down. We stop criticism of the Palestinian flag in order to appease what might be a potentially a volatile situation. But I mean, that's that's real cowardice. And that cowardice allows this kind of inflamed version of a heckler's veto 
to operate. Definitely. Right. Let's talk a bit about the COVID inquiry. It's a bit of a uh, blockbuster week this week, especially with Dominic Cummings giving his testimony. Now, I think it's fair to say that most of the media and even the inquiry itself actually has focused on uh, Cummings's language. You know, excuse my French before I <laughs> say this, but he's called uh, various officials and politicians morons, cunts, and fuck pigs, whatever that means. <laughs> but one thing that we haven't seen much of um, is discussion about whether the lockdown was a good idea. I mean, Luke, what have you made of that? Well, I was listening and been following some of the evidence uh, recently, and there have been some witnesses who have identified how, for example, there was almost no regard paid to the fact that this the lockdown would have a disparate impact on uh, women, on work, on the working class, on uh, members of ethnic minority communities, for example. That was just completely bulldozed. Mm. I mean, they do. It is really interesting when you listen to the questioning and the responses. They use the word COVID when they mean lockdown, yeah. which is really interesting. So they will talk about the impact of COVID. They will not talk about the impact of lockdown. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just to take a step back and, and look at the inquiry overall, it has now, I think, descended into a complete farce. Um, this is a very different public inquiry to one which would have existed maybe 40 or 50 years ago. Um, public inquiries have always been set up in order to investigate a specific problem with a judge and to find out whether there's anything different we can do to stop it happening again. So, for example, in the past, you would have looked at things like the Aberfan disaster. Public inquiry gives a series of recommendations about what can change about the law um, to make sure this never happens again or, 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 or as best we can. The COVID inquiry is an example of a, a more modern inquiry, which is effectively political. It's yeah. moral. It's, its scope is so vast that really the, the lawyers in that room are being asked to adjudicate on the entire moral and political trajectory from day one of the pandemic um, into the future. Um, and for that reason, you know, the, the process is going to take two and a half years um, at huge public expense. And that, I think, is why we're receiving all this tittle-tattle about, you know, what Dominic Cummings, Dominic Cummings called different people at different times. Um, I think it's broadly unhelpful. I mean, this is not going to help us prepare for a future pandemic. Yeah. A, an ideal COVID inquiry would have been narrow. It would have said, right, what can we learn from this pandemic, which we can apply in the future? And what can we use in the law in order to make that happen? We're 100 million miles away from that at the moment. Um, and I found it all quite quite depressing, really. And uh, I remember you wrote on Spiked back in 2020 why there should not be a COVID inquiry. And I think events have totally vindicated yeah, I think that's that, right. that view. I mean, Joe, I mean, Luke is right to say that this is political. You can see just in the tone of the questioning, who's in favour, who's not in favour, whose view, um, whose reputation the inquiry wants to safeguard, whose it wants to trash. Absolutely. I mean, I think the phrase you use there, tittle-tattle, is absolutely the right way uh, to, to pose this. This has been the focus for this week. But you think that's incredibly insulting. Mm. And the focus on um, swearing um, and, and kind of this faux outrage that um, civil servants and people working at the top level of government, Boris Johnson's advisors, were using bad language in this very stressful situation and this kind of mock horror at what they were reading. That is incredibly offensive because what is truly outrageous is not the bad language. It's locking everybody down in their homes yeah. for the best part of two years. It was these petty rules and regulations that we all, all had to live by, you know, buying a scotch egg, meeting in a group of six, staying six feet apart from other people. You know, it was this petty um, regulations that governed people's lives and the power that, that a small group of people had to make those rules and, and 
the long-term consequences of it. We see more and more evidence of this every day in terms of education, uh, NHS waiting lists, damage to the economy. And the fact that there is this inquiry going on that is not paying attention to any of that, I mean, is insulting. And what makes it worse is that we are paying for this. You know, not only did was there an economic cost of lockdown, but we're now paying millions of pounds of taxpayers' money funding this political um, showcase. Yeah. Potentially, it's going to cost somewhere between 250 and 400 million pounds, you know, <laughs> getting up to nearly half a billion quid uh, just to essentially to relitigate uh, an existing narrative. I mean, it's so clear that the, um, the sort of lawyers in charge, the judge, they just think that we didn't lock down early enough. We didn't lock down hard enough. Um, the scientists were all brilliant. Um, they should be completely exonerated. That history is even being rewritten to make it appear as if they were pro-lockdown back in March when they weren't. The reason we delayed the lockdown was because the government was following the scientific advice. You can disagree with that scientific advice, but that's what it what it was. Um, and Brexit as well <laughs> keeps coming up. It came up on day one of the inquiry. It was a key part of um, Helen McNamara's uh, testimony. She was the second uh, you know, most powerful civil servant working at the time. But, but you say it's being rewritten to kind of praise the scientists and, and give due, due respect to mm. the scientists. I mean, that's true. But the important point there is like some scientists, yeah. if you look at the way Carl Hennigan's been treated, I mean, the outrageous way he was held to account for things that for, for the Greg Barrington Declaration, which, you know, I think was good. And, and I would support that document. Yeah. But he the fact was he didn't sign it yeah. you know, and he didn't write it. And yet they spent hours, it seemed, berating him for this document rather than looking at the scientific evidence that he actually had to, to suggest. Sinetra Gupta, another, these are world leading epidemiologists um, who have not even been called to give evidence because what they were saying went against this dominant narrative, which you're absolutely right, is now being rewritten. And, and to bring up the bad language again, you know, they made a point of reading out a message in front of Carl Hennigan so that he knew that. The people in Sage thought he was a fuckwit. Why? To quote, why? Yeah, why? Presumably to humiliate him. You know, they they question his scientific credentials, even though he's the you know professor of evidence based medicine, mm -hmm. the, the head of evidence based medicine at university, the University of Oxford. I mean, the treatment, yeah, the way that people have been treated differently according to whether they toe the correct line or not is extraordinary. And then in contrast, you have um, civil servants or Sage people, whether they're basically given softball questions, you know being told, aren't you brilliant? I think John Edwins from Sage w uh, was told, you know, you should have credit for raising the alarm, even though he didn't. What well, one extraordinary factor to remember about this inquiry is that the government ordered it itself, <laughs> gave it statutory powers to compel its own ministers to hand over these WhatsApps and these documents. I think it's therefore a fascinating insight into how the establishment is willing to tear itself apart and unwilling to toe the line. And that made me also think about transparency because one of the big discussion points around this inquiry has been isn't it wonderful that we have this level of transparency and journalists absolutely frothing at the mouth yeah. at having what they call peak transparency but, of course, but I think it's going to be hugely damaging because now in a future pandemic people will be very worried about making decisions in an agile and fluid way which is was necessary I mean say what you like about the decisions that emerged yeah. I have no doubt that it was necessary to make decisions quickly to not make everything minuted and make sure everything was through a formal cabinet you know gathering or whatever 
and that people will be unwilling to do that we will you know people will feel and and of course had they made um had they made decisions in any other way had they not been in active communication all the time over whatsapp the criticism would have been the other way they would have said well you were slowed down you didn't you weren't able to respond to events etc so i really think that that the kind of damage that this level of transparency and scrutiny will do to our ability to govern is something that the government hasn't even reckoned with yet yeah and if you think about how ministers will not be able to say what they think on whatsapp in private communications with their minds on the inquiry you know when it inevitably comes i mean people were talking about this inquiry you know, within weeks of it, actually, of the virus actually striking us. I know. I mean, really, there should have been one question, were lives saved by locking down? Mm. Uh, And that should have been the only question. And it should now be possible to answer that question because we can compare excess deaths in countries that that had strict lockdown compared to countries like Sweden, which didn't. And, you know, you should be able to do that very clearly and, and very quickly. And this is important because if there is another pandemic, which there might well be, we need to learn lessons from this quickly. And the fact that we're not means we're just wasting our time. We're, we're playing these political games. And, and the answer is no, it didn't save lives, I think it's, it's fair to say, Absolutely. based on the evidence. Right. Let's talk a little bit about woke capitalism. Is it maybe in retreat, perhaps? I mean, there's been a few stories in, in the past couple of weeks. Uh, Unilever, the head of Unilever, um, this mega conglomerate, which owns brands doing everything from you know ice cream to soap, they've said that well, not our brands don't need to have a social message anymore. <laughs> which is a really bizarre thing, isn't it? Because really, what they're saying is mayonnaise should just be about mayonnaise. <laughs> you know, the idea that mayonnaise or soap, you know, ever yeah. did have a social message in the first place—that somebody saw fit to look at a bottle of Hellman's mayonnaise and think well, what's the social message that this mayonnaise is trying to convey? It better be anti-racist. <laughs> exactly. It's a bit too white. <laughs> no, sorry, <laughs> Selena. Um, but, but yeah, I think that you're right. There has been some pushback. We've seen a number of, uh, particularly around advertising and marketing. Mm. Um, Victoria's Secret have gone back over to skinny models, thinking this might help boost the, the profits back up. I think what's also interesting in the wake of our Black Lives Matter chapters in the US coming out um, actually quite crudely in the um, uh, past couple of weeks in support of Hamas, Mm -hmm. making some really quite crude statements. Um, You've seen some of these companies that have been very pro-Black Lives Matter very quietly dropping these statements of support from their websites. And um, I think there's just, particularly from the off the back of the Bud Light boycott, yeah. there's been a bit more of an awareness that, that maybe um, if you are wanting to make a profit, woke, overt woke messaging mm. is not the way to go. But I'm wary about too much of a celebration of this because I do think that the underlying principles of woke capitalism are about more than just marketing. Mm. You know, it, it's not... I think it was always a mistake to think that, you know, capitalists sat there kind of read into some claw thinking, you know, really we're about making money, but we'll just pretend that we're interested in this social message uh, so that we can sell a few more, you know, jars of mayonnaise off the back of it. I think it was always about a bit more than that. And I think that bit more is is going to survive a change in marketing and advertising strategy. Well, I think companies are realising that this is a pointless minefield. We're talking on the day that MS have brought out their new Christmas advert, which has already caused uproar. Um, but part of the uproar was because uh, a paper hat that one of the participants throws into the fire happens to be in the 
colours of the Palestinian flag. Christmas colours. Christmas worth and, out, and, and they, so then they ended, so, ended up being arranged <laughs> in the it. order. <laughs> and the advert was filmed in July. Yeah. <laughs> so this is it. So then, but then companies have to come out and try and explain themselves. <laughs> And so just imagine working for an advertiser and trying to think all the possible impacts, that are, you know, all the possible messages that could be read into your adverts. I think there does come a point where they think this is broadly not worth it. It's also worth mentioning that we've had one of the first prosecutions for a Black Lives Matter activist prosecuted for fraud in this country this week. Mm-hmm. So um, just spent around £60,000 of raised cash for BLM on, her, on, on herself. So there is always the risk that the causes you end up signing up to in time turn out, and especially when these causes appeared to come out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember that Black Lives Matter was assembled quite quickly in response to events and suddenly had this enormous corporate backing. Well, that is coming home to roost for companies now. But I think Joanna's right that we have to keep an eye on the underlying decision-making behind businesses and how they operate rather than focusing on the marketing. Because, you know, as I say, marketing can be interpreted in any number of different ways. But you can be sure that the boardrooms, the people who work there, the people coming into the staffing of these companies are still woke, still very much uh, a part of that ideology and will be for a long time. I think the point is that almost even if they're not individually woke, this this kind of woke ideology has become the way that capitalism regulates itself. Mm. I mean, it generates acres of paperwork where people have to submit to their board, companies have to submit to their boards of directors kind of charts detailing the diversity of the staff, the gender pay gap, the ethnicity pay gap, and kind of gathering all this data um, around environmental, social governance, uh, around net zero, around the diversity of the workforce, around the unconscious bias training sessions that staff members have been on. You know, this kind of provides the way that companies grade and regulate and relate to each other, relate to their staff members. It provides the way in which workers are disciplined. I mean, again, you go back kind of to when I first started having a Saturday job. You know, the way you were disciplined was you'd have a little kind of clocking on card that you stamped and it it registered the time you um, arrived at work and the time that you left work. And it was very kind of clear, really, what you were selling was your labor for a certain number of hours. Now, with unconscious bias training, it almost feels as if what you're selling is your soul. Quite literally, you know, it's your thoughts, it's your unconscious that the bosses have control over and, and have access to. And I think this, this kind of equality, diversity, inclusion, um, uh, environmental, social governance agenda, you know, it's a very useful tool for the kind of capitalist class, if you like, to regulate themselves. Uh, relate to each other and I think most importantly to be able to discipline the workforce. Yeah definitely and I think it's worth thinking as well about the the Nigel Farage scandal because that all went on behind closed doors. Um, They were actually at pains to deny that they had debanked him at first Um, and yet you know we've seen all these messages come out about various staff members saying you know that they were glad to they'd like to you know see him out of the country that you know his views are odious and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is kind of what Joanna's saying, right? This is a, very much an internal thing. It's not just about parading virtue to potential customers. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I also think as we're seeing, you know, the Employment Tribunal is actually a really interesting forum for these di- disputes to be worked out because quite often we've seen cases recently where people have been speaking up against what they perceive to be a kind of woke orthodoxy within their workplaces, particularly around gender. Mm. So people expressing particular beliefs around um, there being two genders have found themselves in hot water with their employers that's ended up in the employment tribunal 
Um, and what we're seeing is that um, I think the tide is shifting on the in, in, in terms of the law. You know, the employment tribunal is more willing to protect those kinds of beliefs from uh, discipline uh, from an employer. But really, the cases aren't the point. The point is that the the rise of these cases reflects a culture within workplaces where there is this accepted morality. Yeah. And I think people feel that up and down the country, they feel as though where they work, there is only one way of thinking about particular topics. Mm. Um, whether that be gender, I assume at the moment it also it, relating to Israel and Palestine. I think that it would be very hard in a lot of contemporary workplaces to give a full flow to support to Israel at a time like this, precisely because of these kinds of policies. And that's where kind of um, the, the cross between wokeism and, and cancel culture can can really stifle people and really make people believe that they're alone within their workplaces. And that 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 is how I think these these things come to fester within within businesses and with organisations more broadly. I think the transcript of the emails and text messages that were exchanged behind the scenes relating to Nigel Farage is really interesting to tie in with what we've just been talking about in relation to the COVID inquiry and how kind of Brexit is. that That's the urge you, you yeah. see in, in the um, KCs. Uh, they seem to want to point the finger at Brexit, at populist, uh, populism more broadly, and at the Boris Johnson kind of get Brexit done uh, government. Uh, and... It's almost as if you see with both those instances how we are labouring under a political class that is just still not over Brexit. Yes. You know, is using every opportunity it can to get one over on people who backed that kind of populist revolt of 2016. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.